Well, good day, fellowship. It's great to have you with us. We're continuing our series today on available. What it could happen if my life uh, was in God's hands and if I lived with that reality. Before I begin, though, I just want to just make a quick announcement. Uh, many of you have asked uh, if you wanted to go to Israel, and we're doing two trips. We've had a lot of interest in this, and there's an informational meeting coming up October 15th, which is a week from tomorrow evening. So Monday evening, October 15th at 6.30, right in this room. Uh, and you'll hear all about the information on that. I'm actually going to be sharing some of the stuff on an Israel trip in my message today. But if you have any interest, uh, just show up and we'll get you uh, the information you need. All right, so we're talking about this week what it would look like for our lives to be available for worship or with worship. And with that, I just want to talk to you about that whole concept of worship. Because worship is, sounds like a religious word. It sounds like you have to be spiritual to, you know, play ball with it. But ultimately, every one of us is a worshiper. It is not a choice. It's just what we do. We've been created to bring glory, which is an expression of ourselves to something of value in our lives. And so worship can be either towards God or it could be towards yourself or it could be towards a position at your job. It could be for uh, a certain income level. It's the things we take glory in. And this week, as we've looked into God's word, we've come up with this as our memory verse, Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. And let me just remind you of what it says. Paul says, and whatever you do, Whatever you do in word or deed, spoken or action, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So there's a few things I want to call out on this in two words. One, whatever you do. Worship is not just what you do in here. It's whatever you do, even away from here. And, and in everything, do everything that you do is an opportunity for worship. So I crafted a definition for us to follow, and it kind of answers this question of what is worship. And worship is the ordering and outpouring of all of life for the glory of God. The ordering and outpouring of all of life to the glory of God. And what this simply means is that Jesus gets my first and my best. He doesn't get my last and my leftovers. He gets what's first. And when I order my life around Jesus, he's at the center of everything. Everything flows from a relationship of Jesus. And so worship is a a conscious choice to make Jesus the first and the best about who I am. And then that last word of glory. What does it look like to bring glory to God? And it doesn't have to be glory to God. We can glory in um, like, KU football. I mean, I know it's not a lot to take glory in right now, but we can take glory on our team. I'm a Packer fan. And there were times, God bless you, whoever just said that. Um, there were times when, when the Packers were playing, I became a different person. And when they scored a touchdown, I erupted. I said things I never thought, and I did things I never thought a pastor would do. And I was excited when they won, and I was destroyed when they lost. I was putting too much glory in the Packers. (laughs) Thank you, whoever said amen. A Chiefs fan just said that. Okay. (laughs) 
But what is it to glory in something? Glory engages three things about us. Number one, it it engages our desire. And about desire, what do I mean? I I mean, it's, it's our why. Why we do what we do. It's our motivation. It's our inspiration in life. And here's the thing. We can desire a lot of things. And what happens is that we glory in them. Let's talk about that. I can desire, if I'm single, to be married. And so I'll glory in the next option in my life for marriage. I can desire to want to have children uh, with, with my wife. But if we don't have children, as soon as she says she's pregnant, ah, that's why I take glory, right? In other words, it's dependent on something happening if my desire I can desire to have more opportunities, to take more vacations, and therefore I'll glory when my income goes up to allow me to do that. I can desire to be wanted or appreciated, and therefore when you encourage me, when you pat me on the back and affirm me, that will bring glory. It brings me glory. Desire is the motivation of your life. And we're called in scriptures to make Jesus our greatest desire. To not desire other things more than him. The first commandment in the Old Testament. You shall have no other gods before you, before me. God is number one. He receives my first and my best. Secondly, it has to do with dependence. Dependence. And what I mean by this is this is the object of my trust. Where I find freedom or relief from suffering or hurt or difficulties. This is where we find salvation. And we're called in the scriptures as we find Jesus to follow him, to make him the one we trust in. And we can trust in ourselves, we can trust in others' opinions about us, or we can trust in Jesus. But they will build a dependence, sometimes a healthy and many times an unhealthy dependence. And then the third thing, a third dimension of glory is delight. What brings me the greatest pleasure? What's my greatest treasure? The things that I value the most. And these three areas fuel worship in our lives. They fuel me to express myself, to order all of life around it, to outpour everything about me in it for the glory, for the glory of God. So as we think about this, as we think about this, these three dimensions of glory, let me just ask you, these are all good things, but they're all created for the greater thing of worshiping God through Christ. Again, we're born worshipers. It's either God or it's something else. We, we will choose to worship something with each day that we live. But what's the end of what you worship right now? What's the end of it? How long will it last? God's eternal. And so we're to pour, as followers of Jesus, we're to pour our lives into things that last, not the things that are corrupt, that will, that will erode or out, be outdated or need an upgrade. Do you hear that story about what happened at Sotheby in, in uh, London yesterday? It's that big art auction uh, house. And this, this graphic by the artist um, Bansky was auctioned off. And it was auctioned off at just about 1.4 million USD, US dollars, or over a million British pounds. 
And within seconds after it was auctioned off, the artist actually put a shredder in the frame and it began to be shredded in front of everyone's eyes. People were freaking. The video went viral. It's the, the artist uh, who did this, actually, when he put it in the frame, planned it years before that when it was auctioned, someone would press a button with a remote control and it would shred over a million dollars of his art. The, the artist did this because he's a prankster. By the way, this is, this is, called, this is called Girl with Balloon. <laughs> they were really creative in that. But now it's called Shredded Girl. Some say this is worthless now. Others say it's more famous now. It'll be worth more because it's been shredded. I don't know. What do you do with a shredded piece of art? You just paid $1.4 million with it. It just reminds us that this is the end of everything that's not eternal. Think about it. There was a time when I got really, really excited about sitting out in the cold and waiting for the iPhone 4. I just was. It was just uh, some of us early adopters. I see you right now. I was there. We love the upgrade, but we don't like what's outdated anymore. So our affections can shift. Are your affections, are your desires, are your dependence, is the things that bring you the greatest delight, do they last do they last? Because the scriptures just kind of orient, reorient our hearts around only God, his word, and people last forever. And all of those are engaged in worship. All of those are engaged in worship. So let me tell you a story now. And to do that, I want to uh, direct your attention to an Old Testament book in the book of Second Chronicles. If you don't know where that is, open up your Bible to about a third of where the Bible is, if you have your Bible. And if you don't, we always have them on the back there on those two wooden tables. Feel free to go and pick one up. But this is an interesting story that happened uh, around, around 800 B.C., And it happened uh, in a divided kingdom where Israel was to the north and Judah was to the south of where present Israel is today. And the king at the time we're going to look at is in this southern kingdom. His name was Uzziah. Can you say that with me? Uzziah. You just spoke Hebrew. How about that? That's lesson 101, you know? Hebrew for the rest of us. But it's two words that are put in that name. In Hebrew, your name was your identity. And Uzziah literally means strong and then my God is. So my God is strong. Can you imagine if that was your name? Uzziah. If you're pregnant, you might want to consider that name. I don't think anyone in the kindergarten has that name. (laughs) Uzziah. The Lord is my strength. Think about if that was your child. Lord is my strength, come for dinner. Lord is my strength, do your homework. Lord of my strength, get out of the vineyard. Lord is my strength, take this message into town. Every time his name was called, he was reminded that everything he needed in life would be provided by God. Every challenge he faced, God would protect him. Every success he achieved, It was the hand of the Lord in his life. We need a name to remind us who God is and what he's doing in our life. And so this young boy took the throne when he was 16 years of age. I don't know if you're 16, but can you imagine being president at 16? 
It's amazing. I won't speak to that, by the way. But it's at age 16 years old, and he ruled for 52 years. I'm 53. That's a long, long time. Over 10 U.S. presidents have served in that time frame in U.S. history. But he was one who in Judah reigned for 52 years. And my goodness, did he have a reign. He expanded the territory of Judah and he confronted and defeated groups like the Philistines and the Arabians and the Meunites and the Ammonites all to the south, southeast and southwest of his territory. Even the Egyptians feared and respected him. He built up the infrastructure and agriculture of the land. He developed land and cities, built towers in Jerusalem, towers in the wilderness, dug cisterns. And as he did this, the economy absolutely took off. And the stock market, literally like cows, sheep, and goats, and wine production, and grain, and all the crops, just soared. It was reaching levels far above 20,000 right now. It was just growing and, and uh, soaring. He also thought a strong Judah was a safe Judah. So he built his military strength, over 300,000 strong. He developed 2,600 guys who he called the mighty men, special forces who would do the heavy lifting to help the king against the enemy. And my goodness, was he an innovator. He was the Elon Musk of Judah. He actually built a battery-powered catapult that could go for five miles on a single charge. Actually, he didn't, but he did build a catapult. And he could build, he built at that time weapons of mass destruction. He was the poster child of a leader, an innovator, a power to be reckoned with. The scriptures say he did all of this until he was strong. The Lord is my strength. There was one place, however, where Uzziah did have no power, and that was at the temple. And it was at the temple where Israel and Judah, actually at this time Judah in Jerusalem, were had to humble themselves and come in weakness because it was at the, at the temple where the presence of God, the holiness of God, and the power of God were physically displayed. And no matter what your title, no matter what your position, from, from king all the way down to beggar, you had to come in weakness. You had to come in humility. You had to allow the priest to represent you before the Lord. And that's where Uzziah struggled because all of life was about him. Let's take a look at this as it develops. In 2 Chronicles 26, verse 16, it says this, but when he, Uzziah, was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God, and he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. But Azariah, the chief priest, went in after him with 80 priests. Why did he do this? They were called men of valor, by the way. He did this because Uzziah did not approach the Lord in, in, in weakness, in humility, with honor. He approached him with pride. And Azariah was a courageous enough man that risked his life. See, the king could just go off with your heads. It would be over. So 80 others joined him to confront this prideful, 
powerful king. And they said this. They withstood King Uzziah and said to him, King, it is not for you, Uzziah, God is your strength, to burn incense to the Lord. But for priests, the sons of Aaron, I mean, the history goes way back to Moses, who are consecrated, set apart by God to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for you have done wrong, and it will bring you no honor from the Lord God. And Uzziah did what we do when someone tells us what to do. And we don't want to hear it. We get angry. Then Uzziah was angry. Now he had a censer in his hand to burn incense. And when he became angry with the priest, what happened? Leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priest in the house of the Lord by the altar of incense. And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests, catch this, look at it. They looked at him and all of a there it was. Leprosy was breaking out on his forehead and it turned, sorry for the graphic sound this morning, but it just started eating away at his face. And they go, here's leprous on his forehead. And they rushed him out quickly. And he turned himself and hurried to go out. Do you see it? They pick him up. And as they're picking him up, his feet are doing this, but he's not moving. They're just being rushed out because the Lord had struck him. And King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death. And being a leper, he lived in a separate house. He was excluded from the house of the Lord. And Jotham, his son, was over the king's household, governing the people of the land. Think about this. Think about this. This is what happens when we make worship more about us and less about God. And so there are some really good lessons for us to learn on this. Lessons for us to avoid, but also an offense, a a good way to worship, that we need to humble our hearts before the Lord and allow him to teach us in this defining moment of worship. Remember, by the way, this is something that was discovered recently, and 800 years after this historical event in 2 Chronicles 26, King Herod was was widening or or expanding the city of Jerusalem. And he came across Uzziah's bones that were buried outside the city. And they collected them and they moved them to a different tomb outside the walls because he couldn't be buried inside the walls because he, again, was still, even as a dead man, had leprosy. And they found this in recent years. It's in the Israeli Museum, and it's inscribed in Aramaic, which was the language that was written at the time of Herod, which was at the time of Christ. He says, Hither were brought the bones of Uzziah, king of Judah. Do not open. <laughs> I'm glad they have that last, do not open. You know, what is this? You know. But here, again, archaeological evidence for the historicity of the scriptures. King Uzziah. How, what do we learn from this in worship? Remember, worship is ordering and overpour, uh, outpouring all of life for the glory of God. Here's a few things I want us to remember. Number one, when you worship, worship dependently. Uzziah forgot. Uzziah started believing in his own strength, in his own position, in his own power. So he forgot that he didn't he started believing the lie he didn't need a representative he didn't need the priest to intercede with God with him anymore and he started doing his own thing before the Lord here's what we need to remember 
no matter. No matter how independent you are, you still need Jesus. We value independence. It is one of our pride and joys here in the United States. And although I appreciate that raising three boys, they are moving towards more and more independence with their lives. But we are always dependent when it comes to worship. When you approach the throne of Jesus, when you, uh, when you approach God in prayer, when you look into the scriptures, when you sing a song, when you pray, you are never alone. You're never alone. Now, you can come to church and feel alone, especially as we've grown larger. You can come and sit where you won't be noticed and be the first to duck out. I mean, our change in our worship service now, you can't do that anymore. But, but you used to be able to leave before... You can feel that you're doing all of this alone, but here's the truth, and here's the perspective that God, you're never alone. We always need Jesus. Always need Jesus. And he's the one who intercedes for us when we pray. He's the one whose spirit lives in us, and we look into the scriptures. Oh, I get it. I understand it. And now he empowers us to follow it and be obedient to the scriptures. He is the one who is here with us. We're never alone with Jesus. You know, most of our world operates, at least in religion, it operates under this thing of I've got to do better, and as long as I'm good enough, then I'll get in. And we look at our own performance, we look at our own works, we look at our own righteousness, but none of that qualifies us to be before God. Only Jesus does. So when you come in here, realize you're not coming in here alone. And it's good to recognize the presence of Jesus with us. Live and worship dependently. Secondly, worship humbly. Uzziah walks in, and it's interesting. It says, in his strength, he grew prideful. Pride develops over time. You don't just wake up and go, I'm a proud person. And it's very deceptive. When you do as much as Uzziah does, when you accomplish things for the first time, when you're at the top of your class, when you're at the top of the game, when you're at the top of the income level, there's a subtlety to it. And the more power you have and the more power that you've been given, the more the temptation for you to believe that the rules don't apply to you. I was reading this week about Napoleon, and he said, I don't believe that I'm ultimately restrained by moral law anymore. I think I'm above it. <laughs> Look at history. Look what happened to the small man with a lot of power. He was defeated, right? But there was a time when he was strong. And when you're strong, it's so easy to believe your press. It's so easy to believe. You were the first to do this, first to accomplish this. And it it is like an intoxicating temptation for all of us to buy into. We need to realize that worship requires the humility of our hearts. So no matter how strong you are, you still need saving. And I think this is really important for us. This is where the gospel speaks to us every day of our lives and where the gospel fuels our worship. Because think about what happened when you put your faith and trust in Christ. When I put my faith and trust in Christ, I humbled my heart before the Lord. I didn't say, God, look at me. Look at me. Look what I've done. 
You deserve to have me. Look at how good I am. I'm better than that person. And as long as there's that person in my life, I'm not that bad, right? No, worship humbles my heart to realize I'm, I'm not the person that Jesus is. By the way, I'm not even the person I want to be. I fall way short, not just of God's glory, but even my own expectations, if I'm honest. And worship requires the humbling of my heart. So when you come into a place like this, or when you worship when you're driving, or when you worship and you're at home, or when you're worship and you're obeying the Lord, remember, it's, it requires the humbling of your heart. Folks, we are messed up. You don't look at today. You look really good today. And my view, you're beautiful people. But God knows the heart. He sees the garbage. He sees the brokenness. He sees the insecurity within us and requires us when we worship. We don't worship in strength. Folks, we're saved through weakness. That's where the power of the gospel is made great. It's the less we become, the greater God can become in our lives. That's why one of the people that Jesus said was one of the greatest people ever walked this earth was John the Baptist. And his whole motto was, I must decrease, he must increase. So worship itself is the decreasing of yourself to increase the glory of God. Worship humbly. Thirdly, worship honorably. You get this picture of the priests fearing for their lives of what this confrontation is going to do with King Uzziah. And all of a sudden you see, it's not like a visible hand, but you see leprosy breaking out on the person you're confronting, God had to say, no, Uzziah, you will not do this. The priest said to, or Azariah said to Uzziah, what you are doing will bring no honor to the Lord your God. We need people like this in our lives. That will be uncomfortable. These confrontations, very uncomfortable, but we need it because our culture values no one tells me what to do. And we get ticked when anyone calls to our absolute authority, absolute truth, because it's all in up to me. It's up to me to decide what's right or wrong. And the problem with that is just, I'm 53 years old, folks. I've been sincerely wrong in my life. And I'm a better man because there's been people who loved me enough to confront me and to say, Joe, no. No, I love you way too much to allow you to operate like this anymore. And there's a temptation to leave when that happens. There's a temptation to walk out of the room But I am a better man because something within me said, I need to listen to this. We need this. We need honor to be restored again in our lives. We need to respect the authority of God in our lives. And that's what worship does. No matter how accomplished you are, you still worship as a child of God. Let me talk to you about that. That's your first calling. That's your first calling as a child of God because we have a loving heavenly father who sent his one and only son to live and die and rise for us to save us. And once he saves us through faith, we then are set apart for his work, crafted for his good work. 
No matter how accomplished you are, you're still a child of God. Folks, I have loved my kids more than I've loved Jesus. And can I tell you that? Just tell you something? I, that reaped havoc in my family. It put way too much pressure on my kids to perform for success, for results. Some of you adolescents in this room, you know what I'm talking about. Your parents get far more excited about your performance academically or athletically. And when those things aren't going well, everyone's nervous. That's a ton of pressure to worship your kids. And, and, and they weren't made for that. They weren't made to be worshipped. Some of us can worship our spouses Others of us can worship our jobs. I've worshipped ministry with the appearance of worshipping Jesus. And that is hollow because it all comes down to what do people think about you? And I will chase that every day when I'm not chasing hard after Christ. Folks, these are hollow things. We need to submit ourselves under the authority of God and honor him in worship. Make this about Jesus live your first calling. We're all children. And through faith, we can be children of God. Live in your calling. Fourthly, worship simply. Worship simply. I think it's interesting that the priests had to go in and say, Uzziah, this will not be about you. Don't complicate it. It's, it's about God. It's not about you. And I think about how we can be pretty complicated in worship. And I just want to address what has to happen in this room for you to worship. What if you don't like the song that's being played? (laughs) No, worship for you, right? We can be worship Nazis if we're not careful. The temperature in the room's too cold. I'm not going to worship. I'm not going to worship until it gets warmer in here. The lights have to be just right. Joe needs to be in focus. I need to have PowerPoint. I've got to have another screen to keep you undistracted because otherwise I'll just see people like this looking at their phones, checking their fantasy numbers because I'm preaching over. What does it take for you to worship? I don't like the baby next to me. That's going to bother me on worship. I'm not going to worship now, God. I'll get you for this. Get that baby out of here. We can do things like that, folks. We can make it really complicated. Folks, it's not a compliment for me to hear you say, Joe, I'm going to be getting a new job and I'm going to be going to a different city. I'll just never find another church like Fellowship again. That's not a compliment to me. That means you've just structured it around our style. And you know what? Worship is about Jesus. Let's keep it simple. I've learned to worship in a bunch of different environments. I've traveled to India and I've been in a room that was 98 degrees in the middle of a slum. Kyle, remember that? In, the, in a slum. And people were worshiping Jesus. We celebrated communion there. And I knew they mixed it with slum water. They mixed the grape juice with slum water. And I drank it. And I got sick. But I still, at the moment, worshiped Jesus. <laughs> Even though I bowed to the porcelain goddess at one time in my life. Oh, there's, there's so many different places we can worship. Don't limit God. I'm only going to worship one hour a week. No, anywhere you go, whatever you do, do everything in the name of Jesus. 
keep it about him. Folks, we can have this air of innovation or technology or progressive. We can have that whole picture. But no matter how progressive you are, worship simplifies around the gospel. Remember what we learned about the gospel when we talked about being available for the gospel? The gospel is the truth that God sees us. We're not alone. He sees us. And he sees into our hearts and he knows about us. And he chooses to love us anyway. So he sent his son, Jesus, to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He lived for us. He died for us. And he rose again on the third day to defeat the power of sin and death in our lives. It's all about Jesus. And now that you've trusted in Jesus, if you have, then your life then just simplifies around God setting you apart for his good work, for his purposes, not yours. And as a follower of Jesus, I give up my right to do whatever I want to do. And I say, God, what do you do? What do you want me to do? That's worship whenever we order our lives and overflow our lives around making God greater. Worship simply. And finally, worship easily. Worship easily. Whatever you do, do everything in the name of Jesus. Worship is not just here. It's outside of this place. It's it's alone. It's with. It's when the group of fellow believers are together, and it's when we're scattered all around this city. Make Jesus greater in word, in deed, in everything you do. And be careful, though. Be careful that you don't put all your marbles in one style of worship or one genre of worship. Worship easily. It's the mark of a mature believer. Number one, they love easily. They don't pick and choose who they're going to love. They love everyone God puts in front of them. It's a mark of a mature believer that they learn easily. They don't have to have their podcast all the time to learn. They don't have to have their favorite lists of speakers and ignore the person who's teaching in front of you. Folks, I've learned to, I've learned to learn from a kindergartner who can show me more about their faith in Jesus. We've got to be willing to open up so that worship's not confined to an hour a week and it's not confined to a place. A mature believer worships easily. It's so easy in a world of reviews to get done with a a message and go, I'll give that four stars because that's what I gave my air conditioner on Amazon last week. So easy. Did you like that? Was it fun? (laughs) As if that's the standard for worship. What if it was a better question? What if when we left, hey, Did you give glory to Jesus when we got together? That's a better question. Because then it moves us around what worship is. It's the ordering and the outpouring of all my life for the glory of God. Worship easily. Folks, no matter how deep you are, you can worship anywhere. You can worship anywhere. You can worship when you're doing the things that you despise the most, like filing your taxes. Because if you're, if you're worshiping God and you're, you're tempted to cheat on him and increase your charitable giving in order to fabricate, to keep more money in your pocket, when you go honest with taxes, you worship God because you make it about him. 
when you're careful, when someone cuts in front of you and you withhold what you're about to say, whether or not your car has kids in it, and you just go, I forgive you, merge. (laughs) When you do that, that's making God greater. I think about all the times I've had to worship that I just made it about me. So when you come into a place like this, or when you enter the workplace on Monday, or whether you have a conversation with your child, order your life, outpour all of your life for the glory of God. That's what we're going to do right now. We're going to practice these elements that we've just learned. We're going to celebrate communion. And by the taking of communion, hear what you're saying. Here's what you're saying. God, without Jesus, I got nothing with you. So this is just an expression of dependence, of dependence on Jesus. So when you come to worship and you take this, prepare your heart for that. Step down from whatever platform that bolsters your life and confess to God your dependence in Jesus. Second, humble your heart. Humble your heart, because here's the deal. We can be really successful out there. We can have top, and some of us can be at the bottom of that. But none of that matters here. The ground is level at the cross. The cross reminds us we need a Savior. We need Jesus. No matter how strong we are, we still need saving, and only Jesus can save us. Humble your heart around that simple truth of the gospel. Third, third, honor the name of Jesus in your life. So much so that you'd be willing to confess whatever sin stands in the way. Gossip about someone this past week, fear or worry that caused you to do a repeating pattern that wasn't trusting the Lord. Confess that before the Lord. And as we play this song in preparation for this, after you've done that, sing. There's something about singing when we're together that transcends anything else that happens here. And that is a a willful expression of the worth of Jesus. We're going to be singing a song called, My Worth is Not in What I Own. I love this song because here's here's what it says. It ultimately says, in a culture that defines us by what we have or what we do or what we make, that, that in the economy of God, it's not based on anything else except Jesus. So we're going to simplify this whole service around Jesus. And I'd invite you to sing, to sing and declare the name of Jesus and worship as forgiven, loved children of God. I'm going to ask that you hold on to these elements so that we can take them together.